0: Go ahead and take a seat, please. Got just a couple of announcements here. Um, The first is we do have services tonight at 5 p.m. This is a non-small group Sunday. That means we'll be back here at 5. Um, The other is with the youth rally coming up, uh, that means two things. One, you may need to sacrifice a little bit of your elbow space next Sunday and make sure you wear deodorant. Those are the things to keep in mind. Um, When you come in, we're going to have maybe 80 to 100 folks more than we have this morning. We will have some extra chairs, but that means uh, let's get close, let's get comfortable next Sunday, so when you come in, I just encourage you to uh, sit in a tight formation so we can get everyone in. I, I feel like I need to start with an apology, kind of, sort of, sorry, not sorry, kind of an apology. I set you guys up last week, but it wasn't my idea, I'm simply following what Paul did to his audience when he was writing Romans. And so I feel bad, but I don't feel bad because I feel like I had to do what Paul was doing to, so that we could feel and experience a little bit of what Paul wanted his readers, specifically his Jewish readers, to feel and to experience. Last week we studied Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And that's the section where Paul addresses um, a bunch of things that are wrong with the vase. And the them's. So he spends all his time pointing his fingers over there, getting a little bit irate about their behavior. What uh, what can be known about God is plain to them. They are without excuse. They became fools. They exchanged the glory of God, and God gave them up. Paul is writing in a way that it is like a drumbeat that is going to increase in intensity. It is going to increase in loudness as he begins to talk about all of the things the Gentiles are doing that deserve wrath. And it comes away with this sense that the problem in the world is those despicable Gentiles. I can imagine if Paul were preaching these words instead of writing these words that as he gets louder, those Jews in the audience get louder and louder with their amens and preach it and speak the truth. And maybe somebody stands up and maybe somebody applauds because they love it when the Gentiles get what is coming to them. And Paul, he goes louder and louder, and I can imagine someone saying, finally, a preacher who doesn't care about being politically correct just says what needs to be said. Imagine when Paul gets here and he says these words of the Gentiles. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree and that those who practice such things deserve death, yet they not only do them but even applaud others to do them. And the drumbeat of they and them increases to its peak. And Paul stops and he takes a breath. And as he takes a breath, each of the Jews in the audience moves a little bit closer and says, oh man, I hope we get more of this. I mean, Paul's on a roll. Keep giving them what they need to hear. Keep telling them all the things they are doing wrong. Keep piling it on the Gentiles. And once Paul catches his breath, what does he say in Romans chapter 2, verse 1? Therefore, you have no excuse. Whoever you are, when you judge others, for in passing judgment you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. And did you see the pivot there? They and them, and the barrel of the gun is pointed out there, and people love it when the barrel of the gun is pointed out there, but Paul's been setting them up. It's been a trap. It's been a ploy. And now he turns the gun right towards those Jewish readers, and he says, you're next. And they're going to get it in a way that's far more intense than what he offered to the Gentiles See, Paul has taken a page right out of the playbook of Nathan. Remember Nathan the prophet when he had to confront David about Bathsheba? And he went and said, hey, let me tell you this story about this awful, terrible guy. And he had a bunch of sheep, but he went over and he stole one of his. And David's like, let's get him.' And then what does Nathan say? You are that man. Paul takes a playbook out of uh, the book of Amos where in Amos chapter one through two, uh, three, Amos is talking about the sins of the nations and the judgment coming on the nations and he gets everyone riled up and then guess what he does after that in two and three. Let me tell you about the sins of Israel. Let me tell you about the sins of Judah. And so when Paul transitions, you can imagine that there is some uh, silence in the response of people. And I guess the question we have to ask ourselves of last week's sermon is, did it make you feel good? Isn't there a part of us that just feels good when other people have what's coming to them? Doesn't it sometimes feel good to point a finger at all those immoral people out out there and say, that's why the world is disintegrating. Because of them. Those awful, terrible, debased, godless people. People. Doesn't it feel good sometimes to be righteous? And you you kind of slowly step up this mountain of righteousness and you begin to just feel a little bit better about yourself because at least I'm not out there doing all those terrible things that those terrible people are doing. Have you ever thought, what's wrong with those people? And have you ever thought maybe the world would be a little bit better if they were just a little bit more like me? Me? And if you did, in any way or to any extent, then you understand what Paul is rhetorically trying to do in Romans 1 and Romans 2. He has been playing off of the Jewish sense of superiority. He's been setting them up to get them to say, yeah, that's right, we the righteous people are dealing with those unrighteous people. And yet Paul realizes there's some tension in this congregation in the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Jews can't understand why the Gentiles just don't do what they say. Because they are the special people of God. And so when they say at the potluck, no more hot dogs. Hot dogs are not allowed at the potluck. And some Gentiles say, yeah, but we should be able to bring potlucks. And the Jewish people are infuriated that they wouldn't just say, whatever you say goes because you're a Jewish person. And you know, and you have the heritage, and you have the relationship, and you have the privilege, and there's this tension because some people feel superior to others. Paul is going to teach us that a feeling of superiority, when we look at others, means we misunderstand the gospel specifically when it comes to the wrath of God, if you feel like in any way you're standing up on a perch that's a little bit higher, or you're standing a few steps up on the mountain, Paul wants us to all realize where we deserve to be in light of the wrath of God. We deserve to be in the pit of mud. And it doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter our heritage. It doesn't matter our background. That's why Paul makes it very clear. In Romans chapter 1, he says, that they, the Gentiles, are without excuse. And guess what? In two one, you, the Jews, are without excuse. The playing field is leveled when it comes to the wrath of God. And there's specifically two things that Paul confronts the Jewish readers about. First, he says, you are doing the very same things. Now, can you imagine a Jewish person in the audience saying, I'm not doing the very same things. I mean Paul you're talking about women who are trading unnatural relationships with women and men who are trading unnatural relationships with men and you're going to say that I'm doing the same thing as them. I am not. And yet what Paul has done is he has he disguised all of the ways that they have lived astray from God in a way that they were so, they were so bloated about their own righteousness they didn't even see some of the things Paul mentioned in one twenty nine, Filled with every kind of wickedness. Envy. Deceit, gossip, being haughty and boastful. So if you are haughty about the fact that other people are trading unnatural relations, I can't believe people in the world are doing this, Paul says, you are guilty of the same thing. Your own pride, your own haughtiness, your own superiority. And who has not ever envied someone? And who has not ever gossiped against someone? Paul's saying, you're standing on this perch, but you have no perch to stand on because you are doing the very same things. And if you as a Jew think we as Jews are superior to others, he's going to say, look around. Are there not Jews who participate in the same thing? But the second problem, and this is the most glaring problem for them, is their judgment on others. When Paul talks about judgment. He's not talking about discerning between right and wrong. He's talking about condemning other people because of their judgment behaviors. The Jewish audience here believes that they are self-righteous enough to be able to say exactly what God will do to others because they stand in a superior position. And remember the problem with the Gentiles was they exchanged the glory of God for their own glory. The Jews have done the exact same thing because who is the judge? God is. And whenever you flip that around and say, you know what God, you don't even need to judge. I got it all taken care of right here. I've got the wisdom of God to judge. I've got the knowledge of God to judge. I've got the position of God to judge. God's going to say, you've got to realize, you're not God. And so these Jews who have been uh, applauding now get their own moment. When I think about the Jewish problem that Paul is addressing, it reminds me of a scene from Scarlet Letter. A woman named Hester Pryne is found to be with child, even though she's without husband. They bring her into the town square, and they're trying to get her to say the name of the man who is the father. Um, But Hester refuses to do so, and so several people have gotten up there, giving them some self-righteous speeches about how she needs to say who has done this. And eventually, one of the speakers says, "What about Reverend Dimmesdale? Reverend Dimmesdale, come up here and have a few words for this lady here." Reverend Dimmesdale says, "I charge thee, speak out the name of thy fellow sinner." And of course, the irony is Reverend Dimmesdale himself is the father. Of the child. How easily we stand on perches when we're stuck in the mud. How easily we take a position of self-righteousness when really there is no thing for us to stand on in terms of superiority. And so Paul says, of the Jews, they're going to share a very similar fate as the Gentiles. 2.5, but by your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul imagines his audience asking, the question, how could this be uh, that, that God would do this to us? And so his response is in chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. For he will repay according to each one's deeds. Those who by patiently doing good seek glory and honor in immortality, he will give eternal life. While those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. So Paul breaks up this into a very simple formula. Those who do good will receive as their reward eternal life, and those who do wickedness will receive wrath. And this is where everyone puts it, and they go, time out of this, hang on, Paul is saying this? Doesn't this sound an awful lot like works righteousness? Paul's saying good people who do good things get a good reward, and bad people who do bad things are going to get wrath, and they're saying this does not sound like Paul." But the key to realize here is that Paul is in this section talking about the wrath of God. How is it that people will be subject to the wrath of God is by their own wicked deeds. So we see Paul is, is introducing them to this theoretic or hypothetical situation. It's like if you go to, to work for a company and you ask what the pay is and they say, we make widgets here and every widget you make will give you $1. And so they say, so if I make 100 widgets a day, you're going to give me $100 a day. Absolutely. If I make a thousand widgets a day, you're going to give me a thousand dollars? They say, absolutely. Even though they know no one's ever made more than 150. It is true, you get one dollar per widget, but it doesn't mean that they ever think you're going to attain that level. And so Paul is saying, remember, this is the way that it happens with the wrath of God. If you are good in a complete, perfect, whole sense, you will be rewarded with eternal life. Later, Paul is going to let us know, but that's not possible. That's not going to happen. But if by wickedness you will get what you deserve is the wickedness. And so, just keeping this within the conversation of the Jew-Gentile relationship, Paul reminds us, there will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. The gospel, we were told, was salvation first for the Jew and then the Greek. And now judgment, we were told, is the very same thing. The Jews are going to be in the front of the line. And then in Romans 2.11 is one of the most important phrases in this section, for God shows no partiality. This means God doesn't judge on the basis of economic status, or ethnicity, or social class, or any of those things. God simply looks at this person and his choices, or her choices, and the decisions that she has made. Your sins alone will lead to God's righteous, fair judgment. But why does it matter if God is impartial? If you were a part of a legal system that you felt like was not partial, I think you'd take that uh, to heart and you'd be deeply concerned. There's a a, a judge named Marvin Frankel in 1973, um, said, we we need a little bit more justice in the US capital system. He he used the example, first of all, of uh, federal bank robbery. He said, federal bank robbery is a judge. He can sentence someone Up to 25 years, which means somebody can get a sentence of zero to 25 years. And he said, that's a huge span. It is not fair if one person is judged a one-day sentence and someone else is judged 25 years for the same thing. He said, isn't there a way we could find more fairness here? He talked about in that article two specific examples. Uh, One was two men who had uh, cashed counterfeit checks. The one man cast a cheque for fifty eight forty, the other for thirty-five twenty, neither had a criminal record, and Frankel says, We would assume their convictions would be the same, but one man was sentenced to fifteen years and the other to thirty days. We say, Oh, well, that sounds fair to me. Is that justice? Fairness? Equity? He talked about a case of embezzlement where two men were convicted of crimes. One was sentenced to seventeen hundred and seventeen days, and the other was sentenced to twenty years. So what do you think? Does it matter if God's partial or impartial to you. I think absolutely, because if you look over and you got 20 years and that guy got 117 days, you might think something's not fair here. God's impartiality is that he treats all people when it comes to justice in the exact same way. And Paul has a very important implication of this because God is not partial. Paul wants to be sure that we are not partial to others. So I want to just look at a few cases in scripture where we see this huge word about partiality being used. Um, we'll go to Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Peter is there, remember, he sees the food coming down, and says, hey, I'm not going to eat that food. Um, and then God tells him to eat it. And then God's going to send him on to Cornelius. And Peter says in Acts 10, 34, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. Which this is not a, just a revelation about God, but it's a revelation about his own calling and mission, right? Because what's he supposed to do now? I need to go take the gospel to the Gentiles, because God does not show partiality. In the book of Ephesians, when Paul is addressing masters and slaves, he says in Ephesians 6, 9, stop threatening them, this is masters to slaves, for you know that that both of you have the same God who is, uh, sorry, same master in heaven, and with him there is no partiality. So why aren't masters supposed to mistreat their slaves? Because God doesn't show partiality, therefore You should not show partiality between masters and slaves. Next example comes in the context of of finances. Uh, James asked the question, My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism, the same word as piety here, with partiality, do you with your acts of partiality really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? In other words, if you're being partial to certain people on the basis of wealth, it almost makes me believe that you don't even believe in Jesus. Because Jesus is impartial. To make sure we see this clearly, look at verse 9. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. God does not show partiality, so we must not show partiality. Have you ever treated someone differently on the basis of the job they have? Whether it's in your workplace, in church, in your neighborhood... You find out, oh, okay, yeah, you're a, you're, you're a plumber. Okay, good, nice to meet you. Oh, you're a CEO? Oh, now all of a sudden I'm going to treat you better. We treat others with partiality all the time. You ever treat people differently because of where they live, kind of income they have, color of their skin? Any and in all of those things, Paul is saying, if God does not show partiality, we cannot show partiality to others, which has been fundamentally the problem in Rome. They are showing partiality, Jews and Gentiles alike. So every time we start moving up this mountain of our own morality, we need to be careful. Anytime we start to think we are fundamentally better than someone else, we need to be careful. Because the fact of the matter is, when it comes to the wrath of God, there is not one that stands head and shoulders above another. In fact, we're not even on flat ground. We're crawling around in the mud pleading with a God because we know we get what we deserve. Then in Romans 2, 12 through 3:8, Paul's going to essentially deal with some of the yes, but objections. Essentially, some of the Jews are going to say, but we have the covenant. We have the law. We have circumcision. Surely these act as a buffer. That the God's wrath will not touch us because these are protective shields that will keep God's wrath us. and Paul will deal with their concerns regarding the law, Paul will say in 2:13, "For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who are justified." should sound an awful lot like what we're looking at James this morning. He's saying, "Having the law does you no good. Only doing the law does you any good. And then to show that Paul is not just against Gentiles, notice what he says in chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. He says this to shame the Jews, that there are some Gentiles who don't even have law, who act more righteously than you act. Have you ever noticed that? Some of these awful, terrible people out there, that you are like, oh, man, these people in the world. And then you see them show kindness to others, show love to others. The point of that is to shame us and say, we have the word of God and yet we're not even fully consistent with being the kind of people God calls us to be. Or regarding circumcision, Romans 2.5-29 and Romans 2.25, circumcision is indeed of value if what? If you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So in a very similar way, having circumcision in and of itself is not valuable unless one does the law. And one does the law. Again, this is the theoretic man who does the law to perfection. And then in chapter 3, Paul will address this concern. Yeah, but but if, if, if the Jews suffer from the judgment of God, doesn't that mean that God's unrighteous? And Paul will say, no, God is righteous when he pours out his wrath on people who deserve it. Paul wants his Jewish and Gentile readers to agree. If he were to ask who deserves the wrath of God, everyone in the church should raise their hands. And if that happens at the end of this section of Paul, Paul will know he has accomplished what he hoped to accomplish. But I want us to think about our context here. There is a writer named Nassim Talib, and he says that there are certain professions that are susceptible to what he calls superstar effects, actors, athletes, musicians. That these are people who, who as they as they grow in their professions, people begin to revere them with almost a godlike status. And they become superstars, and not just in their own field, we allow them to speak, but we allow them to speak in any sort of field because we believe that in some way they are superior. And not only do we believe somehow they are superior, they begin to believe they themselves are better than others. I read just this week about a well-known actress who was on a flight. And uh, the flight attendant said, can I get you something to drink? And she leans over to her assistant and says, would you please tell him I would like a Diet Coke? She's so good she can't even talk to a flight attendant. The superiority that people experience. And as Christians, we want to avoid being that type of Christians. That somehow we are better fundamentally than everyone. Because what we do know is what? Fundamentally, we are not better than anyone else. Fundamentally, we deserve the wrath of God. But Talib says that then there are professions where there is an absence of the superstar effect. Professions like plumbers and fast food workers and taxi cab drivers. I mean, how many many people walk around and idolize people in those professions? They keep people grounded and humble. And I guess the question is, when Paul is talking about the Christian community, what should we be like? Superstars? Actors? Or should we be like the salt of the earth, people and clearly we realize there is not a superstar among us that there's nothing that makes us any better than anyone your spiritual background your your experience in the christian faith your maleness your femaleness the color of your skin the amount of money that you make all those gain us nothing we remain under the wrath of god I think this mindset is illustrated by C.K. Chesterton. He was a writer, a philosopher, a theologian, became a very public figure in England. Uh, Every year he would have about 40 uh, radio sessions on the BBC and was one of the most prominently known um, figures at the time. And there was this newspaper series where they were doing this series of articles and people were asked to write in to answer the question, what's wrong with the world? Think about how you would answer that question, what's wrong with the world? And I suspect there's some people who would, who, who, who would do what Paul did in Romans chapter 1 verse the said, we've got this going on, we've got this going on, we've got this going on. And here's what C.K. Chesterton wrote in as his response. Dear sir, regarding your article what's wrong with the world, I am yours truly. Doesn't that sound like Paul's trying to get us to realize here? And maybe I think we'd all do well to remember what John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace said late in his life. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I know that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. If we remember that, we will be the kinds of people who realize what differentiates me from someone else doing all sorts of immoral things has nothing to do with me, but simply it is a gift, a gracious gift by a gracious Savior. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as we go from here, uh, what a blessed and glorious gift that we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Um, We're going to be standing to sing a song in just a moment. If you want to respond in any way, just invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this next song together.